Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. I'm Davey, your host. Joining me, our co-host, Aubrey. Aubrey, Hello. today we have a conversation with Joel Manby. Yeah, this is a good one. It's a it's fantastic. A lot of um, difficult things that he walked through. And I think that uh, what you're going to see emerge in this conversation is that even the things that he was espousing, the things that he wrote about, the things that he was the expert on, he would say kind of on the inside, below the surface, he hadn't really taken those things to heart fully mm. and allowed them to transform him from the inside out. And now yeah. he's kind of coming out with this new version of the book Love Works, talking about those things, how to not be a, essentially a house of cards Wow! because your inside is not matching your outside. And it's really good. He specifically talks about this idea of situational hopelessness, mm. which when, man, when he said that, I was like, how appropriate is that? For such a time as this. For such a time as this. I can imagine there are a lot of people listening to this because of the situation of COVID Mm -hmm. and everybody being in their different, distinct, you know, parts of the country, different distinct states that are handling it in different distinct ways. They're they're, they're affected by it in different ways. And of course, there's a lot of hopelessness. We were actually with our, like a group of leaders from our church recently because our, you know, we're a church plant. So yep. our building is actually still closed indefinitely. Whew, wow. And so that has been a unique season uh, yeah. as church leaders. And so we're, we're sort of deepening our vision to have uh, little neighborhood micro churches mm. all around. And so we were meeting with our leaders to, really talk about kind of how we transition and the best way to do it. And we realized uh, we were moving a little bit too fast to like the next step and the pivot. We needed to spend some time honestly, openly lamenting this situation that we have been in. Wow. And so we spent about an hour with the leaders um, letting them spend some time alone with God, yeah. processing their emotions. And then we shared some things together. We read Lamentations 3 together. We wow. prayed together. We worshiped together. We took the Lord's Supper together. It was actually a beautiful thing. Yeah, but I think so the good. reality is, like you said, because of COVID-19, not everyone, but some of us are in really difficult yep. situations that feel hopeless because they feel like where, where, there's no end in sight yeah, here. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think you, know, you could take this and you could apply it to leading in crisis, you know, leading mm-hmm. an organization, leading a ministry, leading a group of people, leading yourself. We all have right. spheres of influence and we're trying to lead ourselves in the middle of this crisis. And it's so important in the middle of cri- in any kind of crisis to always be able to parse out and recognize what am I in control of and what mm. am I not? Yeah. And if you, um, if you misappropriate or misplace what you have control over, it can more readily lead you to a place of hopelessness. If you try to control something you don't have control over. And, um, you know, I was, I was thinking about this when, you know, the, um, when you were just talking about this meeting, Jim Collins wrote a, a book yeah. on business and leadership. That's really, really famous called good to great. I think it'd be, it can be applied mm-hmm. to our personal lives it's too, a but great book in it. He talks about this, this paradox called the Stockdale paradox, which is based on a guy named Jim, Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war in the kind of the heightened uh, season of the Vietnam War. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And he he later survived that, and he comes out and he kind of chronicles it and journals about it, tells other people. But he said there were two different groups of people that did not survive that prisoner of war camp. One group was, as we would all suspect, the overly pessimistic, the ones who just right. lost hope and just right. gave up. Right? They slipped into despair and they they didn't survive it. The yeah. others, ironically, were the overly optimistic. <gasps> no way! Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and here's what he really says. Interesting. The reason was is because they would put like a deadline. Hey, you know what? By Christmas, we'll be out of here, and then it wouldn't <laughs> right. happen. Then no, there would be no rescuer. Nobody would come to their yeah. Right, the war's not over, mm. and so their their hope is dashed. Mm. And you know, I mean, scripture it's very clear about this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. This would happen yeah. over and over and over, and it wow. would make their heart literally sick, and they they would slip into despair as well. And so, what the point is that Jim Collins says: as you're leading through crisis, as you're walking through crisis, you have to hold two things in tension very carefully. One, confront the brutal facts of the situation. Mm. In this situation, I think for you, that's you know, lament this, right. Right? Let's name these things that yes. are just evil and hard. This yeah. is hard. This is out of our control. We yeah. like this this sucks. Yeah. Period. Just period. No yeah. ifs, ands, or buts about it, right? Yeah. And at the same time, not only do we have to confront the brutal facts, we also can't lose faith. Right. That our hope is not anchored in this situation. Yeah. I feel like you're preaching to me right now, Davey. This is such a, this is a good word. I'm even thinking with our kids and for those of us who are at home right now, you know, e-learning. And mm-hmm. I know for me, I keep thinking, okay, well, when my kids go back to school, right, then right. XYZ. When the, and so to be able to go, okay, no, right now, this is a hard season. And even to help my kids yeah. process it, this is a hard season that we're in, yeah. but it is not hopeless. The Lord is still... Mm in control. There still is hope, but let's be honest about like, this is not what we thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a good mindset. I think this is in a lot of ways, just the key to, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be reductionist here, but like the key right. to finding contentment mm. is to eliminate that idea of like, well, when this happens, I'll be content, right? Like right. it's never going to, you're never going to find contentment based on situations. Right. It's never going to be like, well, when this season's over, well, when we finally cross this finish line, well, when we, I think the, the better question to ask is how do I find contentment in the midst of this? I'm not saying it's an easy question to ask. Right. Right. Not saying it's an easy thing to achieve, but that I think is therein lies the key for us to be hopeful. Even when the situation looks hopeless. I was, um, I mean, this is just reminding me, I was, going to sleep the other night and I was like agonizing over, okay, what are our next step as a church? Mm-hmm. How do, is everyone ready? Are we going to lose people or are we going to, well, you know, and I fell asleep in that awesome mind space, <laughs> but I woke up early the next morning and I really, it was just one of those precious holy moments where I, I heard the still small voice mm-hmm. of God saying, Aubrey, the 23rd Psalm, go wow. read the 23rd Psalm. Yep. And I mean, it's been a while since I've read the 23rd Psalm, but we all know the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Yeah. I have everything I need. Yeah. And I feel like I I took a picture of it in, on my Bible app and I just have been reading it over all week. He leads me beside still waters. Yeah, that's so good. He renews my strength. And I feel like that's kind of the reminder that we have to have in seasons of sexual yeah situational hopelessness. The Lord is our shepherd. Yes. 
and we have what we need. So good. And I think if you begin to look at it from a different perspective, you look historically, if we look back, these are the kinds of seasons that have shaped culture and shaped Mm. the things that we're part of. Let's apply it to the church. Methodologically, how you're doing church, these are the kinds of situations that lead to the innovations you're right. That then lead to the next great awakenings and revivals. You're right. And you're right. So sometimes it's like, you know, it's like a forced adjustment where we're like, wait, we can no longer do what we used to do, the conventional methods that we, so we are forced into thinking creatively, partnering with the Holy Spirit. What, God, what are you trying to do in and through the church during this? Okay, yeah. let's, instead of resisting it, getting hopeless, trying to push back, let's walk in that. And again, I I don't want you to just apply this. If you're listening to this, to just think that this applies to leading an organization or management or a church or anything like this is for our lives personally. Mm. God's inviting us into some change. And oftentimes crisis is the very portal that he uses to, to, you know, distribute that invitation. Yeah, that's right. That's where the Holy Spirit is at work. That's a good reminder, Davey. Thank you for that. That's actually one of the things that Joel talks about with you is how some mm-hmm. of the changes that he went through were really the ones where the Lord did some powerful redemptive yeah. work in his life. So I think it's a good time to go ahead and listen to your conversation with Joel Manby. Joel, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me, man. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me as well. Well, you know, I read Love Works a while ago when I was first, I graduated college and I was jumping into my first job in ministry at a large organization. I was putting leadership over a lot of people right out of the gate. And uh, I remember specifically reading Love Works on an airplane and being so profoundly impacted by it. And I especially love the fact that as a follower of Jesus and as someone who was working in a, a Christian organization that I could take business principles and Jesus principles and marry those two and actually find more success. And so I appreciate the work that you've done with that. And now you've re-released it because um, there's quite a there's quite a bit of kind of the backstory that uh, we w- we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, and so I just I'd love I love your work, um, but I also love the fact that God's been doing some really powerful things uh, through some trials and some struggles in your life. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate the words very much. Thank you. It's been a lifelong journey to, to try to figure out how to serve God, but also be in the, the secular marketplace. So it's a, it's been a, it's been a long road, but a good one. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people have that question. There are a lot of uh, men and women that I come in contact with who are serving in the marketplace and they're wanting to uh, serve the Lord really, really well, but they run into uh, cultural uh, obstacles because the world isn't living by the same principles and they're not operating business by the same principles. And so this conversation, I think is going to be very appropriate. Um, and so first, before we kind of dive into your story, Joel, I'd love to hear just a little bit about what you're doing right now, kind of what, uh, what life looks like for you now, and then we can jump back and, and follow sure, your story. Absolutely. Um, I, I left SeaWorld about two years ago and as CEO. And so since then I've been continuing my role as chairman of Orange, Orange Ministries, which was founded by Reggie Joyner. And actually, Reggie and I worked together to start it 20 years ago. Uh, I was kind of the guy raising the funds, and he was the the visionary that had the idea, which I loved. And so I'm just helping them with 
they're really trying to, to pivot hard right now, like every other church, mm. because we're it's now not just church in a building anymore. It's church at home. Yeah. And, it, you know, a lot of churches are struggling with that transition. It, mm. They don't have the resources to do both and. And so we're trying to develop resources at Orange to, to be able to deliver, deliver great the great content of Orange, which I think is world class and the best strategy out there myself. And we're in about 10,000 churches in 42 countries around the world. Yeah. And if we can deliver that technically into the home uh, and solve both the in-home and in-church dynamic mm -hmm. affordably for churches, mm -hmm. then I, I think we serve their mission better because, uh, as you know, or may know, only about half the people now who profess to be Christians actually go into a church building. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to be able to touch them and affect their lives, you got to be able to deliver great uh, Christian content into the home. Yeah. Well, I think Orange is poised probably better than most organizations right now to be able to pivot really well in this crisis. And I, we could talk about this for hours strategy-wise, strategy but, you know, my kids every Sunday are watching Ollie the Owl. Are they really? So, oh, yeah, absolutely. So we're popping it on now because that's what they watch at, you know, at our church. And so it's been really fun to even get an inside look into some of the stuff that you guys are doing uh, to help families Um you know, I really want to talk through uh, some of the, the struggles that you have walked through when it comes to business. Because again, when we read business books, uh, so often we hear about the successes, the how-tos, you know, it's very didactic, but I, but you're going to be able to speak quite a bit to uh, even some lessons that you learned in some failures and some trials that you went through. So why don't you take us back specifically? There's a couple, you know, couple different seasons of your life we want to focus on, but take us back first to this this Amazon startup and walk us through some of the, the walk us through what happened and and some of the lessons that you learned from that. Yeah, I um, let let me start a little back from that. I was, yeah. I was CEO of, of Saab North America, and I had really a lot of tension in trying to spend time with my family that I wanted to spend. It was, I was in charge of the U.S. and Asia, so I was traveling all over the place. And I, I go back there because I made a decision to leave because I was traveling literally 70 to 80% of the time. And, and I basically at the time, um, I just knew I had to make a change. And my family was suffering, my wife was suffering. And uh, I, I say that because... I, I tried to solve this situation and I went into a situation that was even worse. And the, the reason I say that to your listeners is so many times we, we get into a tense situation or a situation that's not what we want it to be. And I think we run to something hmm. or, or I'm sorry, run away from a problem, run away from it instead of right. to something that we're being called to do. And I can definitely say I got a. I want. I wanted to leave. Sob. I was ready to leave. I got a phone call, and I rushed into the decision. Hmm. So the first big learning is: don't ever run from something. Go to something. Run to That's a good. calling. Hmm. And I did not do the due diligence I needed to do. Um, basically, the company was called uh, Greenlight.com, and it was Amazon's car startup. So back in 1999, 2000. If you went on Amazon, you could buy a car, which is still mm. the right idea. I think someday they'll do it. We were just way ahead of the game. And, mm. you know, if you're too far out as an entrepreneur, you can get arrows in your back. Kind of become the martyr, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. And, um, but we had a good business model on paper, mm. but I did not do due diligence in that they, they, 
and this is this is a company that was 35% owned by Amazon, which they were the biggest owner. It had Kleiner Perkins, and they're the, the most well-respected private equity firm in Silicon Valley on Sand Lake Road. So I'm meeting with John Doerr, who started uh, Kleiner Perkins. He's like a legend in Silicon Valley. I meet with Jeff Bezos, who's, you know, at that time, Amazon, they weren't sure they were going to survive, if, if you can believe that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this thing's fantastic. And I jumped, as opposed to looking at audited financial statements, which mm. I looked at their spreadsheets. Well, the, the CEO at the time happened to be a pathological liar. He ended up uh, getting fired soon after I got there. I became president and our CEO right away, six months ahead of time. And then the NASDAQ crashed the second day on my job, which meant, in, in, a, in a nutshell, without going into a lot of detail, we thought we had three years of runway to get the pub company public. Mm. We and it turned out because Amazon, we had to pay Amazon fifteen million to launch. Uh, our valuation got revaluated in the implosion. We ended up having only ninety days of cash left. So uh, one day I think we have three years of runway. The next day ninety days. And wow. so by the end of the first week, I was laying off. 75% of our staff just to keep the doors open. Wow. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the phone with vendors, just trying to keep them from, you know, coming to the door and taking our furniture and shutting the business down. I had Kleiner Perkins partners trying to help, but in the middle of a meltdown, just like 2000, 2007, eight, it's almost impossible to get the funding. And so um, I think that the biggest learnings for me from a professional standpoint is that Take it easy, be called into it, don't run away. Yeah. Due diligence really, really carefully on what you're looking at and make sure it's of God, not of mm. not of you. And once the meltdown happened, I felt like, you know, I just moved a little too slowly on some things to really protect cash flow. Mm. But those from a business standpoint, those were the big learnings. From a, from the personal standpoint, um, Again, I made I made a wrong decision. I didn't solve the issue. So mm. instead of giving my family what they really needed, I went right into another fire cooker. Yeah, I was going to say. Hmm. Not only that, they had moved to California because we were living in Atlanta, and then it went to California. Mm. And the hours, tw literally twenty hours a day, kind of seven days a week, kind of thing. And I was so driven not to fail. Yeah. so driven to not let this thing under my leadership go down that I, I did sacrifice everything else from a time standpoint. And so instead of the relationship getting better, it actually mm -hmm. got worse because not only did I, am I not working with the family, I'm working at, at Amazon. Um, they had moved away from what they knew and what they loved in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. And so it really doubled down. So um, I went wow. through, and I talk about it in the book, the, the Love Works book that you mentioned. Just being in, as, as I mentioned in the book, just being in that apartment alone, because by now they had gone back to Atlanta. They knew it wasn't going to make it. And they wanted to be, my wife wanted to be with her friends and all that. Um, I just had this wine bottle going through it. I definitely drank too much. I definitely coped of the pain of it all through just... Um, deadening the pain basically mm. but it was in that lowest moment 
that I really seriously, as I think all of us, well, I shouldn't speak for anybody else, but two times in my life, I became suicidal. And that was one of them. And it was definitely situational. I mean, it's not something I struggle with at any other periods of my life, but it was very specific and it was very detailed in my mind over and over again. Just the pain was so great. What can I do to, to not have this pain anymore? And in my mind, when you're depressed and stressed and probably sharing too much of my favorite beverages, you get, you get into a state where that actually starts to look good. And it's a very unhealthy state. Yeah. And if uh, just to, to finish out what happened, um, basically, probably, I don't want to say I was prepared to take action on that thought, but I was at the lowest point. That's when Jack Hirschen called from Hirschen Entertainment. And that's what led me to the theme park world. And he pulled me out of the auto world. That's why I switched from autos to theme parks. And he literally pulled me out. That was definitely a God thing. Wow. And he said, I want you to be CEO and uh, uh, actually, I'm sorry, chairman of Hershen. And he had been the only chairman for 50 years. Wow. And he said, let's pray about it. And, and, I, and this, is, this is too unbelievable to be true. He said, how much do you need to pay your bills? Because I can't pay you what a CEO makes because you're going to be a chairman. And I gave him a figure. Um, that was a lot lower than what I was making. And he said, well, that's 20,000 more than I can pay. <laughs> so mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's pray about it. And so we prayed about it. And literally the next day I got a phone call from a search person asking me to be on the board of another company for $20,000 a year. <laughs> I mean, it was almost, it was, wow. I've never had that kind of thing happen before. Wow. So I say that in the story to your listeners that, you know, in the very bottom pit where I thought I couldn't keep going. Jack called, took me to Hershen, and the next 15 years were unbelievable. Wow. Well, you know, that, that Hershen call from Jack was, you know, that right there. When I sit and listen to this story, I go, that was that call from God that you were looking for years earlier. Right. Um, but you, you kind of jumped the gun earlier as you, as you already stated. Well, you know, so you, you nailed it because Actually, when I was at Saab, a headhunter called me about Hershend to be huh. the CEO. And I said, no. And I, I thought it was, you know, too small and whatever. And then a year, a year later, they came back and got wow. me aboard. But I, I ignored probably a calling from God in that mm -hmm. moment, which is, again, ego driven. It's like I wasn't quietly listening to God. So I appreciate you bringing up that well, and I, I want to lean in on a little bit because I know there's a lot of people who are at that crossroads. You know, the the motivation behind wanting to transition was not bad. You know, like we, like you said, it was a good motivation wanting to spend more time with your family, wanted to make sure that you, you know, were were serving them and giving investing in them, and 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 yet um, I feel like there's a lot of people who may find themselves in that situation. Where like just as you said, I want to get out of something, and so they run away from it. How do you? how do you discern what's a good opportunity and what's a God opportunity? Have you been able to kind of philosophize on that at all as you look back on it? Yeah. In hindsight, um, I did a horrific job in that situation. I told literally nobody but my family I was doing that. And when I told, I had a, an account of, I've had an accountability group for 
you know, 40 years now almost. Gosh, it's unbelievable. They were, we all went to Harvard together and we were at the business school there and, and got to know each other. And we've been talking monthly um, almost ever since. And they all said, you're crazy. You know, this thing won't won't make it. But I didn't ask them beforehand. I told them afterhand. Hmm. And it's so wise of you to ask that question because I think the answer today would be, I think there's three types of, of God's will. There's the providential will that we all know. You get mm-hmm. that God is good over evil. In the end, he will restore things. And then there's there's the biblical rules and laws that, you know, if it violates those, then we know it's not of God. Um, the really hard one is the last one, which is, is it, is it, are your skills being used for God's benefit or your benefit? Mm, wow. And I think that's all about the yardsticks we use. And in, wow. I don't know how I'm going to sound here, but it doesn't matter. What Western society I have learned over the years, and I think very differently now as a 60 year old and as a 40 year old, I was way too driven about what people thought of um, maybe what I was doing or was it successful and way too driven by the money. Cause I, I grew up very poor. My dad uh, was a failed entrepreneur. He lost his job as a factory worker. And all I remember as a child, not all, but a lot of what I remembered is the fighting in my family over money. Every, it wasn't arguments as much as just stress and always, why did you buy this? Why did you buy that? We can't afford it. And the kids don't need to wear that. And I was determined not to have that happen in my family. So I believe it was both that driving me and maybe the fact that my dad worked so hard. You know, he never told me he loved me, which is way too deeply and psychologically mm-hmm. uh, not part of this, <laughs> this podcast. But <laughs> I think I was looking for affirmation. Mm. And so instead of God, what God wants us to be and do I was being driven by my own affirmation, desires or needs Mm. and the desire to make money, which neither one make a difference in in how we feel in our lives. Right. I mean, and so today I would say in answer to your question, that last part of God's will is what is it that's going to please God? God is your audience. Nobody else is. And if I had learned that sooner, I wouldn't have made the mistake of, I think, jumping to Amazon or the, when we get to SeaWorld, going to SeaWorld and the mistakes I made there were because I forgot who my audience was. Mm. And and uh, it's, it's so easy in our culture because we success and that the monetary aspects of it are so pushed in our society that I don't think we realize it's controlling a lot of our Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Wow. You know, to that point, you found yourself in this space where you were at the deep, dark pit and uh, it was, you know, out of this failure. And I, you know, Joel, I can relate to this. There's a lot of different types of pain and trial and suffering that could take people to that place. But for me, I feel like that as someone who is driven and ambitious and I'm learning now because of the, the Enneagram is informing me that my personality type uh, is scared to death of failure. And so uh, failure is one of those things that terrifies me and it would be the worst thing in the world to fail. And I've experienced uh, what I would consider some failures that have taken me to some dark places. Why do you think, regardless, I feel like this is 
regardless of your personality, failure is a difficult, difficult, hard pit to fall into. Why do you think it's so heavy? Why is it? Why does it? Why does it weigh on us so much? If you th- sit back and think about, you know, where you were in that apartment, why were you at this place where you were almost ready to to end your life because of, you know, not being able to achieve or succeed? That's a great question. I, I do think it's because we're we're listening to the wrong voices. I, I mm. I'm listening to the voice that. You know, you, you blew your life. You, you had a great job. You had a great marriage. Now both of them are struggling. Um, and I beat myself up over the failure as opposed to saying, doesn't matter if Amazon startup failed. Mm. What does God want me to do? God, God calls me to love other people. And that's love God, love others. Mm. But what does it mean to love? And and that which kind of leads to what I learned at Hershen, which is leading with love and living yeah. by those words should be what we hold ourselves to, not mm. anything of the world. But I, I think it's, I don't have a crisp answer to your question other than I think we're just listening to the wrong voice. Yeah. And I will tell you though now, as, as now that I'm on the other side of some really tough things, I realize now I, I didn't have anything to be afraid of because mm. the true contentment that I have now is because I, I have one audience now and mm. I really don't care about the other things. And that, that, that took some chains off that have been wow. on me for a long, long time. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, our measuring stick, it's like we're, we're measuring things by the wrong measuring stick. We're listening to the wrong voices. We're, you know, as the old adage goes, we're, we're climbing up a ladder and realizing it's on the wrong wall. Yeah, exactly. I saw that adage for years and I ignored Mm. it. I thought I was, I thought I was doing the right thing, but I really wasn't. Yeah. Threes have a hard time being completely honest, even with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And you and I could have a separate conversation about (laughs) that. I'm glad you speak Enneagram. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the more we're in this conversation, the more I'm going, you know what? I need to have a separate conversation with Joel. (laughs) Let's let's plan on it. Same thing. Yeah. I'll I'll come to Indianapolis. I like it. Uh, Well, let let me ask you this. You know, you you made this transition now to Hershen and it was a fantastic, you said off air, it was like, 15 years of bliss, like fantastic. And you actually learned a lot of principles as you've already referenced about leading in love and servant leader leadership and leading like Jesus. And, and this is real, really where most of the inspiration behind love works. The original comes from, can you give us just a, you know, kind of a flyover of some of those things that you learned? Yeah. So the 20 years in the auto industry really was the angst, the angst of, I want to I want to lead a certain way, but I didn't see it modeled in the auto industry. Hmm. And then when I got to Hershey at a very dark point, Jack, their, their culture was evident. Even when I was a board member, they loved their employees. They loved their customers. They loved each other. And it wasn't fake. It was very, very, very natural and organic, but it also happened to get great business results. And that's the first Hmm. thing most business leaders ask is, well, it sounds too soft, leading with love or servant leadership, or I'm going to have to be too nice. I can't hold people accountable. And none of that's true. And we, the, 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 you know, the average engagement score for the American worker is only 30% of 
four out of four. So only 30% of people say I'm fully engaged in my work, Mm. which is horrific. And it's been that way for about 50 years. It's a little higher now uh, before COVID because of low unemployment. It's probably high again. But at Hershen, we would literally take properties from that 30% range to 70 to 80% top box engagement, which is world-class. And it, it, and it, it meant lower turnover. It meant better guest experience mm-hmm. and Hershen properties are incredibly successful within the theme park world. And so it was a godsend to me that yes, you can love on other people, but you still have to hold them accountable. And that's where a lot of people miss the concept of, of love works Two, Like what we did is we took for the listeners who don't know, we took first Corinthians 13, we broke down Paul's famous verse on love into seven paraphrase words. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's mm-hmm. trusting, truthful, unselfish, forgiving, and dedicated. And those are what we define our culture as. Like that is the what we would call the beagles. These are the type of leaders we want you to be. But we didn't just put the names on a plaque and the values on a plaque like most companies do. We actually had top-down, bottom-up measurement systems to measure Mm. those words. We have behaviors underneath each of those seven words. So literally 21 different behaviors that we would talk about, measure. We all had our do goals. We still had to have attendance and profit and growth and all that, like every company has. But more than any other institution I've ever seen, Hershen focused on the B goals just as much as the do goals. Mm. And we would have monthly reviews, just like financial reviews and annual reviews about our culture and our employee scores and guest scores. So it was everything that I had always thought. And Jack's assignment to me was take this culture that's in organic and then put a vernacular to it. Mm. And that's what Love Works, the book is all about. And, you know, for those who have a desire, at least it'll give them enough of an outline of how to go about doing it within their business. And um, I enjoyed really every moment that I was there. Um, and that's the biggest thing I learned is just the, that those wonderful values of God's number one commandment can create a great institution and a great business. Wow. Hey friends, Davey here. I have a question for you. Do you have a heart for helping other people navigate their personal trauma, tragedies, or major life transitions? If you do, keep listening because whether or not you feel like you have the means or resources or the proper training, you can help others take back their story. And here's how. If you have a home church that you attend, We would love to partner with you to bring the Pain to Purpose course to your church. That's right. I'm talking to you. You don't have to be a pastor or a counselor or a minister of any kind. All you have to have is a heart for other people and a willingness to walk with them on their journey. I've been on the phone this week with multiple pastors who want to launch the Pain to Purpose course in their spiritual community, but they're struggling to find the right facilitator to guide the group discussions. I wonder if your church would launch the course in a heartbeat. If someone like you approached them with both information about the course and the commitment to help launch and facilitate it. I realize this this is a big ask, but this could very well be part of the purpose and mission you're looking for on the other side of your own valley. 
One of the things we say a lot at Nothing Is Wasted is that your redemption story begins when you take your pain and turn it around by helping others in theirs. And this is a perfect opportunity to begin that redemption journey. You could be the pioneer behind a major healing movement at your church by launching the Pain to Purpose course, and we want to show you how. We've wrapped this course into an easy-to-implement package. Our team will walk beside you, train you, and equip you with everything you need to be our pain-to-purpose guide at your local church. If you're interested in partnering with us to bring the pain-to-purpose course to your church, we will help you with everything from how to approach your pastors, to what to say to them, and even how to get them excited for the course. You'll be able to tell your pastor that it shouldn't take any additional time or effort on his or her part. All you have to do right now is this. Text COURSE to 66866. Again, that's C-O-U-R-S-E, COURSE to 66866. Pull out your phone right now and text that number. And as an added bonus, if you help us get the course launched at your church, we'll give you your choice of either free access to the Nothing Is Wasted partner program for an entire year or two free coaching sessions with one of our certified guides. Again, just text COURSE to 66866 and let's start a healing movement together. I have no idea. I don't know if I'm like opening up a rat's nest with this right now, but I just felt a question kind of prompt in me, but there's a tension that many people are managing, uh, both, both men and women, uh, when it comes to business or career and family. Um, did you guys see it, Hershen, that, um, uh, let me ask it this way. How, how did you see that culture help men and women to win both in career and family? And is that possible? You know, because we started this conversation with the tension that you were feeling between this, like traveling all the time and wanting to spend time with your family and having to make a decision to sacrifice one or, or the other, or as like uh, Andy Stanley says, choosing to cheat one or the other. Um, were there some principles that were espoused there at Hershen that really helped employees and leaders and executives to win in both their career and their family? Yeah. If so, what, what would those principles be? Uh, the answer is yes. They were incredibly gifted at it. Um, it starts at the top, right? It starts with the board, the CEO, the president, chief operating officer. If they don't support it, it's not going to happen. And it's not just an issue. What I would say to your listeners, it's not just an issue of the heart. It's one thing to say, we all support family. We want to put family first. Um, but it's how we react when the crisis arrives or that project's due and that family member's mm. mom just died and has to go to Michigan or wherever to, to, to be with them. What we tried really hard at Hershen to do is put metrics, if metrics are really robust, both for the do goals and the be goals, you know, you have absolute certainty whether you're quote unquote doing well or not. Yeah. What happens in the political, in the just human nature is because we want to please, we don't, and you're not sure if you're failing or succeeding because there's not robust systems and processes and you don't know how you're doing, or you tend to cheat your family yeah. to, 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 to be at work. Whereas if it's really clear, then 
because 80 to 90% of the people are succeeding. Maybe there's five or 10% that aren't. And if, as long as those people know it, you can still let them go be with their family, but, but you have to have discussions with them at yeah. certain times. So it's really stern or not stern, but, but robust measurement that helps create that freedom to people to do whatever they need to do because we trust them to do what's best for the enterprise. Yeah, that's really great. And coming down to making those really hard decisions, like what you said, when there's a project or an opportunity comes up, you know, where it's like, Ooh, I want to jump on that, but it's going to cut into the time that I've already allocated or committed to my family and being able to create a culture that allows your employees and your leaders to be able to, um, put their family as a priority uh, over those things. It's, well, can I add one more point? Yeah, I would I would love for you to. Because if, if, for you to get promoted within Hershey or SeaWorld when I was there, you had to score really high on the do goals and the B goals. If you were one or the other, you had work to do. And only mm. the senior leaders had to do well at both. Well, to be graded well on the B goals, you have to be family oriented and supportive. And if you're not, you're not going to get promoted. So by default, the people at the very top tended to have that balance, which makes it all work because then we all felt like family. We also had a foundation in place that would help families in need, especially this was before, you know, universal, the Obamacare kind of more universal healthcare. We would give our seasonal workers stipends to pay for their healthcare, even when it wasn't required through this foundation. So all of that creates a spiral up of a family feeling that we're going to cover for each other and things aren't right. And it takes for those listening, I mean, it takes three years. When I said we took numbers from 30 to 80%, it takes processes and time and and on average about three years to get there. So no one can expect a miracle for for it to happen. Well, let's, let's kind of move to, you know, after this 15 years are up, did you go directly from Hershen to SeaWorld or what was it? I did. Okay. I, um, I had come to, a, I actually didn't want to leave. Um, hmm. I was recruited from Hershen to SeaWorld. I, I knew the CEO at SeaWorld that had just gotten fired. He was actually a friend of mine because in the industry, we kind of know each other. Right. And, you know, he calls me and says, you're the right guy for the job. They're going to call you the recruiter and you need to go for this. And um, I, I think, again, I maybe missed a stop sign um, and you would think I would learn. Right. But I wanted to make Love Works as a principal work in a public company. That's mm-hmm. what I really wanted to do. But there were also huge uh, dollar signs that went with it. They were also um, just feeling that I wanted to help turn this company around that I went there and um, I'm, I'm embarrassed to talk about it in a way because some of the same things happened again. You know, I, I, my marriage was already in trouble from some of my own self-inflected mistakes. Uh, I basically wasn't honest with my now now former wife, which we will get to, and I wasn't um, always honest with my accountability group. And I did come clean, but it was too late, right? The, the, the damage of, of what I was not telling the truth about, um, which was, you know, uh, issues I don't need to go into, but it it caused things to get worse because then I went into another pressure cooker and what I should have done um, is maybe leave Hershen just to fix my marriage. But instead, 
I, I went to SeaWorld thinking a, a fresh start would make mm-hmm. it better. And so it is, it is this missing, missing the stop signs. And then um, I think not listening to my heart and not, again, not having that front one audience of one that we all need to have or, or we should have. And when I got into the SeaWorld situation, if I, if I went, took the time to go through all the business issues that had been going on at one time, I mean, it, it would choke a horse and it would take literally 20 minutes to go through them all, mm. but just, just at a very high level so we can do the business side and then the personal side. Um, SeaWorld had gone from uh, basically a cash flow of about 300 million, no, I'm sorry, three, 350 million to about 250 million. It was heading towards half in just a year because of the Blackfish movie. And we had SEC investigations against us, Department of Justice investigations against the, the, the employees that were before me, the CEO before me, that maybe they misstated the numbers or hid the impact of Blackfish. We had animal activists protesting our parks. They protested my home the first day I even took the job in, wow. or in Atlanta. And we even had one of our employees before I got there infiltrate PETA and, and, and was a spy and even took a false name. So that came out in the press at my first wow. board meeting all over the newspaper. Oh, man. And, and at the same time, your business is half the size in a fixed cost business, meaning half, half the revenue, but all right. the costs. And so yeah. we had to move like crazy to cut costs just again, to keep the, the ship afloat. But I think, um, a couple principles I, I thought about that would maybe help your listeners from this experience versus me just talking about all the negative things that were going on. Um, one big mistake I made um, in my learning in this crisis, if I had to do it all over again, I came into a really dysfunctional board situation. Um, it was transitioning from Blackstone private equity ownership to, to public ownership. There were some people that didn't have the interest, the, the enterprise's interest best interest in mind. They were doing things that benefited themselves. Uh, I could tell they weren't trustworthy individuals and I didn't trust my instincts. I, I Mm. should have, I even picked up some of this in the interview process, but again, bulldozing forward like a three does. uh, I'm more worried about selling them on why I should be there versus should I really be there? Mm. And I, so I kind of bulldozed through that. And then once I got there, in a crisis that all, everyone's going through this with COVID-19, frankly, right. you have, they have the crisis of the short term. You've mm-hmm. got to fix the short term issues, whether it's cash flow or people. And then on the, at the same time, you have to vision the pivot. How are we going to change once it's over? And SeaWorld was visioning to become a, an organization not focused on animal entertainment, but on more of a cause driven company. Mm-hmm. And that was a massive change. But at the same time, we had to, as a public company, I had about two years to completely turn the numbers around or they'd be finding somebody else, even though I told them it would take three years. And if I had to do it all over again, I think I put too much issue on the vision. I'm a very creative person and I, and I had a really good plan that we we're implementing for turning the brand around, but it should have focused more on ignoring all these diversions I talked about with the SEC and the DOJ and PETA. I should have ignored that and just turned the numbers around mm. because, you know, at 2.5 years, 
even short of the three years I told them it would take, the activist investor came in and said, you know, you've had enough time. You know, we're going we're gonna to make a change. And mm. right at the cusp of the best, you know, the SeaWorld had a tremendous year, right the year I was let go. But those were the business things I learned. It's kind of that balance between ops and vision and also to, to trust your instincts on the, on the board or anybody else. I had a lot more power, quote unquote, than I thought I did. I should have been much more uh, forceful with the board that they had to govern the right way and they weren't and they were playing the CEO role and we were losing good people. But because I was worried about failing, I think as a three, I tried to appease them too much versus just yeah. saying, it's this way or I'm, I'm out. And I, I, I should have done that sooner, wow. just didn't do it soon, soon enough. Um, Joel, can I ask this real quick? Do you feel like, and this is just coming from a personal question, maybe doesn't benefit the listener at all, but it's going to benefit me. Do you feel like that you were, um, it was harder for you to trust your instincts because of your, the failure that you had experienced in your past? Do you feel like it made you like second guess and go, wait a minute, you know, I don't, you know, I know you just articulated part of it was out of a fear of failure, but do you feel like that any of that crept into your mind where you're like, well, I, okay, I didn't do, I didn't do this pro properly and I failed here. And so you weren't able to really, or, or maybe not. I, you know, I, for me, it's weird. Uh, I've always been very confident in my decision-making process. Mm -hmm. um, so I was, I was, com I was comfortable that logically and analytically I was correct in where I wanted to take the company because I had facts, I'd done the research. I think for me anyway, it came back more to pleasing the wrong people or mm. pleasing the wrong thing because um, I, I think I just wasn't willing to stand up to them because I didn't want to lose my job and yeah. I had to keep mm. the peace too much. Yeah. So kind of back to that audience of one yep. that we've talked about. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I don't know if you were about to transition and kind of talk about then personally what happened out of this crisis. This is where it gets um, a little tougher for me because yeah. I, again, took the job trying to, to make some changes in my own marriage. Um, while I was at SeaWorld, we actually separated. And then uh, about six months before that chairman came to me and said they were making a change, which just crushed me as well. Mm. Uh, we had divorced and lost my job within six months of each other. And mm. so I just, I remember the, the morning, I think the morning after I was let go from SeaWorld, I, I, I've woken up every day at like six o'clock, not like clockwork because I've always worked. I, I was never without a job. I had never been let go. I always was kind of one thing to the next, usually promoted or whatever. And now I had, I hit the snooze probably six or seven times, nine minute intervals and just Sarah Borales would pop up. I love the way she sings Yellow, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Elton John song. And I would hear that over and over again. And I, I remember thinking, I have absolutely no reason to get up. And it just the the darkness just started coming again and it was this time around i went through the same kind of thing of some substance abuse and not taking care of myself that kind of led to all this but this time what what was different is i had a, you know really good psychologist kind of helping me weave through this 
to understand the root of where it came from. And that's where I finally realized that, you know, it's partly the experience with my father, partly the experience with um, being a three, and partly my fear of failure and losing money that I needed to focus all of my energy on loving other people. And as, as much as the Hershen time, that's where my mind was. It was always about leading other people. I never myself really understood that everything I feel about myself and how I feel about myself comes from consistent behavior with those words of love. Mm. And if to say it in another way, the B goals in our life are the only thing that really will bring us contentment. It's the only thing that will really bring us joy and peace with God. It's the only thing that will draw us to him. Because if it's a do goal, if it's about, you know, for your show, having a lot of likes and a lot of listeners and boy, I, I want to have this much revenue, it'll, it'll end up, you'll end up failing because it'll never be enough. It will never be good enough. Whereas you can control your character. You can control whether you do the right thing or the wrong thing and do you love other people because that's what God's called us to do. Unfortunately for me, you know, truthfulness and trustworthiness, which are two of the words of love, I didn't honor those. And I hate to say that about myself. And there's been a lot of days that I, I still don't, I still regret what I did. I, I wish it hadn't happened. It's the biggest regret of my life. And I want to say it to everybody else, you know, losing, losing my marriage and losing uh, all that was a huge regret. Mm. And if I had just said to myself that the B goals is all I need to worry about and God called us to love. So not only love your leadership, but love your family. Mm. And um, one thing my psychologist told me about climbing out of this that I finally learned at 60 is your intent with somebody is very different than the impact you're having on them. And Mm. if you had asked me, did I love my wife and my kids? Absolutely. They were number one. That was my intent. And boy, I was going to quit when I was 50. And, and, but my impact on them was they were always second choice. They were always getting the leftovers. I was, tired when I got home and I didn't, you know, I had a good relationship with my kids, but probably not deep enough. And that is something that I finally learned and have, I have poured into my children and our our relationship is very strong. And I can tell, I can tell you, I've come, I've come through the other side. Mm. Um, It's been four years now since I kind of went into that bad season at SeaWorld and I've been I've been uh, divorced for over three years so it's I'm coming out the other side and actually have now met somebody and I, I I can see what a healthy relationship looks like when I'm healthy and I'm focused on the right things and so ultimately it's about the B goals and it's about being consistent with those that brings us character brings us fulfillment and um I mean, that's at a high level, (laughs) what went on and what I learned from it. Wow. 
That's so good, especially for someone like, you know, someone like me and you and any other three out there or anybody who's very achievement oriented. We like goals. We like to put a mark on the wall and say, okay, a target, I'm going to, I'm going to go after that. We thrive under that. But as you've said, our do goals are going to, uh, they're going, if we just strive after that, we're going to be way out of balance and we're going to, it's going to lead us to an unsatisfying and unfulfilled empty life, right? What Jesus says, what good does it do for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Yep. And so I, I love this perspective of B goals. You know, I'm kind of writing this down going, I need to create a list of B goals for me yep. that, that really focus on how I love the people around me rather than how I lead them. Such a subtle difference there, but it is a difference. The leading versus loving. That's so, wow. That's but it's so good. also, it's also, um, most people don't have B goals. Most people have do goals. If you ask them what their goals mm-hmm. are, they're going to rip off um, a lot of things that aren't B goals. Yep. And at Hershen, finally in my life, and this is why I'm so passionate about Love Works and the concept and why I write about it, speak about it. It's all I do other than Orange right now is because I know that's what brings contentment. Mm-hmm. And I think it's what Jesus wants. He he said, what's the number one commandment? Summarizes everything else. It's love God and love your neighbor as yourself, which is a very high standard. Um, and he also said later to love your enemy, which is an even higher standard mm. that is very difficult to do. And yet in the end of the day, all of us think more, I think more about our do goals and our B goals. And what I didn't do successfully is when a, when a B goal violation happened, you know, you, you just got to correct it immediately. And, mm. and, I just, I just waited too long. I, and again, even that was driven out of fear of failure. I knew if I was completely honest about some of the things I was or did during that very bad period, um, it may cost me my marriage. And so that's part of that cycle of Mm. truthfulness. And I can't say it enough to people if telling the truth at any level, Uh, anything is always the right answer. There is nothing good that comes out of even a white lie or a uh, a big one. And um, I know that sounds obvious maybe to people, but it is tough in the moment to uh, when you're not healthy for a variety of reasons to make the right decisions all the time. Yeah. It sounds obvious because there are a lot of people, I'm going to go back to Enneagram language. Sorry about this, but there are a lot of people and especially other personality types who are very black and white. But for us, especially as threes, we um, are the the lies that we live, the deceptions that we have inside, they're very, very subtle. And sometimes we don't even know it because our MO is to, in a lot of ways, to kind of sell what looks good, right? To make everything positive or look good or, you know, and so we tend to whitewash certain things and, and we're not absolutely 100% truthful about certain things. And then I'm on a journey of this myself where I'm learning like, wait, I just, I just said that right there. And it's, it seems true, but it's, it wasn't like, I didn't, it wasn't the whole truth, you yeah. know, it was I'd left out true. Yeah. I left out the part that was, a, that was just a little bit, but I didn't want people to know about this part or I left out this part and it's so difficult, but you're right, Joel, it is the, it is the stuff that makes uh, that makes us whole. I feel like I feel like I want to reach across the the wires and give you a hug because <laughs> I know exactly how you feel. Yeah. And 
here's the here's the saving grace for everybody listening. Everyone in this call, on this call, is going to go through a crisis. How deep it is, how bad it is, you know, who knows? You will come out of it. I've been through two. You know, why I didn't learn better from the first one is a whole different story. But I came out of both and I came out even better. And mm. and I just I just implore upon people to not give up, you know, and to and to focus on who do I want to be, the B goals and be consistent to those because that's that's what's gonna bring contentment. And um it's just I I finally have gotten to a point where you know, for me to share all this as a three is not easy. And yeah. that's why sometimes sometimes I can't find the words because it's just hard for me to say these things as a three. And what are, what are people going to think of me? Obviously, they're not going to think better of me after hearing all this than before. But that's okay because I am, I, I am who I am. I, I made the mistakes I did. And now God has brought me to a point where I'm a better person. I'm a more honest person. I have found someone who loves me exactly how I am with all my flaws and I don't have to pretend to be anybody that I'm not. Mm. And it is the most content place I've been. I just regret it took me so long to get here, mm. but I've had discussions with my kids. They see it now. They, they love who I am now because I'm not, I'm just, they, they see who I am and they love my blemishes a lot more than I thought they would. Mm. Um, so wow. I just want to encourage you and encourage everybody listening that not only will you come out of it and it, and it may, you may not come out of it like you hoped. I mean, I certainly would have never signed up for a divorce or leaving my, leaving my job uh, or losing my job. I, I absolutely would not. But if you could say, can I be the person I am today versus what I was when I was a a high performing three who was not a healthy three, I'd say I would take today. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, it's just exactly what we, this podcast is about is that God doesn't waste our pain. And so often we talk about the the pain. I feel like a large amount of our interviews are the pain that, of something that happens to us. And I'm so grateful for you sharing a story of self-inflicted pain right? and helping those of us uh, because everyone has some measure of self-inflicted pain. And God doesn't waste that either. He doesn't waste our failures. And I appreciate, Joel, you being as hard as it is for you to be vulnerable about this. I really appreciate you doing that because you're acting as a guide for us. You're acting as a guide that's further down the road saying, and, and you're, you're calling out some warning signs of some pitfalls that we could run into if we're not careful about this. I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm, I'm uh, what you just said is so powerful because... It is one thing to overcome a horrific situation that you didn't cause, like an illness or someone in your family dies. But when part of it was self-inflicted or most of it, it's, it's harder to come out of because you had no one to blame, but either a bad relationship or yourself. And for whatever reason, it's there. And that's harder to recover from because you always go back and said, I never wanted to be a divorcee or I never wanted to have lost a job and yet you are now and it's really hard. So you got to, I have really had to focus on 
God wants us to love. I'm good at that. I'm being honest. I'm being truthful now. And that's all I can do being going yeah. forward. I'm, so I'm really glad you brought that up. Wow. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Joel. And I want to encourage all of our listeners to, to pick up Love Works, uh, the updated version, because, you know, the, f- the first part of it, it's going to be some incredible principles for you in life and in leadership and loving other people, treating other people as Jesus teaches us to treat other people, looking out for other people's needs before our own. But also then this updated version has got quite a bit of some of the story that you've told and some of the lessons you've learned through the hardship. And so I think, honestly, I think I'm excited about picking it up and reading the part that you've added to this, because I think it's going to make it an even richer read now. Well, thank you. And I, I will, I'll just do a little sales pitch. You know, they can buy it either Amazon or joelmanby.com, but on joelmanby.com, there is a free resource of how to lead in, in a crisis. And um, given what our country's been through, yeah. Uh, there's some good principles there as well, but absolutely wherever they get it, they get it. And that's fine. That's so necessary. Well, absolutely. Go to joelmanby.com and, and pick up that free resource. And um, Joel, we're just so grateful that you'd spend some time with us on the, on this episode. So thank I, you, I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll, we'll get together sometime and have a big Enneagram discussion. Yes. Yes, we will. Maybe, maybe your, your orange responsibilities will bring you to Indianapolis or something, or next time I'm, I'm in Atlanta, we can, are you in Atlanta now? Is that where yeah, you are? Yeah. Yeah. Indian. <laughs> so, yeah. India's a big market. Yes. I'm in Atlanta, but Indy's a huge market for orange and we always, our tour stops always go through orange. So I'll definitely look you up when, if I go there. Oh, well, thanks, man. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was such a good conversation you had with Joel. I really appreciate his honesty and his openness and his perspective on everything. He's one of those guys that, you know, and I got off of that and I was like, man, he would be a great like mentor. You know, some some mentors are really great because they just, they just executed everything in life really well. But then some mentors are really great because they've got a story and they've got some failures and they're like, Hey, let me kind of help you along the path. So you don't have to experience the things that I have. Yeah. I feel like you two have a lot of similarities too. So he'd be a great guy for you to keep connecting to. I want to read a review from a listener. It's a really powerful one, kind of a long one, but I'm going to read the whole thing. I can't thank you enough for allowing God to use your journey of pain and suffering to minister to so many people, but especially myself. About 15-ish years ago, God started me on a journey of loss and laying down, rebuilding and renewing, and it has gone from one area of my life to another. The journey has been gut-wrenching at times and joyful at others. It seems like with each layer of laying down and loss, it has taken me deeper and deeper to depths I didn't know were hurting and needing healing. Wow. In the last few years, as I've been able to listen to each story and God has used each one to somehow heal a piece of me, some have been so personal and close to my story and some have been nothing close to my experience, but it doesn't matter. Each one has resonated in my soul in some way to bring a piece of healing and wholeness. Mm. God has used them to encourage me, and as a tool, I can point others to for encouragement and healing. If we could write our own stories, we would never be able to write the way God does to bring beauty from ashes and purpose from pain. Thank you so much for listening to God and making this platform one of hope and healing for so many. You will never know until you get to heaven all the lives that God has used you to touch because of your obedience. 
I just listened to your interview, Davy and Christy. This ministry you said yes to has a far-reaching platform that you would not have had without your best yes. Mm. I know you reached many lives for the kingdom through the church, but this has the potential to reach lives you never could have if you hadn't said yes to God, and I am one of them. Wow. Wow, Davy. Wow. Thank you, whoever wrote that in. That was uh, very, very heartwarming. Mm-hmm. Man, I love that she said that um, at our best, we would never be able to write the kind of story that God writes. Mm. And it's so true. I, I just always want to encourage people. I think because I'm a, one, I'm a writer. I love to read. I love yeah. stories. Yeah. You know, so you see metaphors and allegories and stuff. And I want to encourage people, find your metaphors, find your allegories, find the images in your own story, in your own That's pain good. journey that God is using to write and weave into redemption. It is so powerful when you see the details that he threads throughout your yeah, entire story. Yeah, the themes story. he weaves yes. together. You just absolutely Oof. know there's an author. Like you cannot right. deny it. That's yeah. so good. That's so good. Well, speaking of stories, um, sometimes we're pretty good storytellers. Sometimes we're not. We're learning how to. Right. But we're, uh, we do that oftentimes on Instagram. We like to tell stories on Instagram. So you can follow us at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. You can follow me at Davey Blackburn. You can follow Aubrey at Obsamp, A-U-B-S-A-M-P. And we want to thank Sleeping At Last for providing all the music for the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. Thank you, Sleeping At Last. And uh, if you need to check out anything, any other extension of ministry that we do, you can go to nothingiswasted.com. You can check out our community groups, our coaching. Um, and we'd love to help you in any way we can. And next week, we actually start off a new series, which I'm very excited about, an adoption series. And the first conversation that we have is with Sarah and Sam Ward. They talk Mm. about really a beautiful, but also a painful story of adoption and how God moved in really tremendous ways. So let's go ahead and listen to part of their conversation with you. Sarah and I ended up as chaperones on this mission trip to Haiti. And while we were down there, we're with a group of students and we ended up going to this orphanage and we walked in and there are kids lying on the floor and they didn't even know how to play basic games like peekaboo or things like that. And both Sarah and I, like our hearts were just gripped. Sarah wanted to bring home three or four in the suitcase and something shifted in us at that point in time. And we knew that somehow adoption would be part of our journey Um, We didn't realize exactly how it would play out. Um, And that was years later, we uh, went through a whole infertility journey. That's a whole nother story. Mm -hmm. And then ended up in the adoption process. And we were planning on adopting from South Korea. Okay. At that time, though, um, we had started the program and thought everything was going really smoothly uh, when Sam started having some health problems. And Mm -hmm. it was just what we thought was common back pain. He was uh, 30 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. The doctor thought the same thing, but it just kept getting worse. And eventually, doctor told him, I can't manage your pain. You need to go to the ER. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was at the ER that he was diagnosed with cancer. And it was a shock to us, of course, because we were not prepared that it was going to be that significant of a diagnosis. And at that time, then it put our adoption in jeopardy. 